Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. Imagine you're at work and the ED charge nurse gives you the heads up that there's a 24-year-old woman coming in who is two days postpartum with severe vaginal bleeding and a BP of 70 on 40. ETA is five minutes. You prepare your team, your gear, and yourself. Let's talk postpartum hemorrhage. Take it away, Swami. Postpartum hemorrhage isn't a common presentation, but I think it's one that we do have to be comfortable with. When precipitous deliveries occur in the emergency department, we often focus on the baby, but we can't lose focus on the other patient, the mom. Key point number one is in recognizing postpartum hemorrhage. Typically, we define it as more than 500 cc's of bleeding after birth, but sometimes that doesn't all happen at one time. It's not this brisk bleeding of 500 cc's. It might be oozing over time. It can be difficult for us to really assess how much blood loss there's been, and we can't rely on hemodynamic instability. These are young patients, and that's going to be a late finding. The rule of thumb that I use is to simply look for more bleeding than you expect with a normal delivery. Once you recognize that you're dealing with postpartum hemorrhage, you want to get your consultants on board since operative control isn't uncommon. Obviously, this means OBGYN. If you have no OB in-house, then general surgery can be extremely helpful. And if you've got no surgical backup, then you really need to get that transfer moving early so you can get the patient off to definitive care. While you're doing that or while someone in your department is doing that, you want to simultaneously start your resuscitation. Two large bore IVs, a monitor, and you want a large bore suction so you can clear the field and keep track of how much volume loss there's been. Just like as in trauma, these patients are bleeding blood, not crystalloid, so we should limit the amount of crystalloid we give them. Get blood early, shoot for a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio, and consider the use of tranexamic acid. The WOMAN trial was a large randomized control trial looking at the use of tranexamic acid, and it found a decrease in death due to bleeding with no adverse events. And while this data has been debated as to what it means, I think it is a reasonable intervention to reach for tranexamic acid. That one-to-one-to-one ratio that we mentioned, there's no data specifically on postpartum hemorrhage for that, but it makes good sense based on what we know about trauma and applying that here. Now that you've got your IV started, the blood is running, your consults are called, it's time to figure out what is the cause of bleeding and what we can do to stem it. This is a time to take a cognitive pause and to consider the four most common etiologies. These are the four T's, tone, tissue, trauma, and thrombin. And we're going to go through each one of these. Tissue means retained products. You want to make sure that the placenta is whole. If it's not, insert a hand into the uterus and remove any retained tissue, since that retained tissue is likely going to be a source of bleeding. The second T is for trauma. This includes uterine inversion, which was covered on EM cases back in August 2016. The bottom line is to manually reduce the uterus, and that should reduce the bleeding. Lacerations are another common traumatic cause of bleeding. You want good suction to clear the field, direct repair if possible, and if not, you can apply direct pressure to the area to stop the bleeding and stabilize the patient. The third T is for tone or uterine atony, and this is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. Often the uterus will feel boggy and you need to restore tone to it. You can start with external uterine massage and then move to bimanual massage. Place your left hand into the vagina as a fist and your right hand externally, and you're going to massage the uterus in between your two hands. If that doesn't work, we're going to move on to medications. Oxytocin, methergen, hemabate, and carboprost are the most common medications used, and we'll drop a table in the show notes with the doses for each of these since we're not going to remember them. Fourth is to consider packing the uterus with gauze, or even better, number five, is to do a balloon tamponade of the uterus. The best way to do this is with a Bakri balloon, which is specifically designed to do balloon tamponade for the uterus. But if you don't have a Bakri balloon, you can use a condom. Put that on the end of a Foley catheter, blow up the condom through the Foley catheter after you place it into the uterus. And there are some articles showing that that can provide hemorrhage control. What you don't want to do is think that placing a Foley catheter and inflating that small balloon is going to create tamponade. What's more likely to happen is that it's going to mask bleeding that is happening behind it and not actually stabilize the patient. In reality, you're going to be doing these things together. 
while you're starting your external massage or your bimanual massage, you're going to be calling for your medications at the same time and to get that Bakri balloon to the bedside if you happen to have one. The final T is for thrombin or DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and this can be a little bit tough to recognize. The easiest way for me to think about it is to look at the IV sites and see if there's oozing around them. If there's oozing, the patient has DIC, or at least you should consider DIC. If you're a little bit into your resuscitation, you might have some lab values back and see a decreased hemoglobin or hematocrit, an increased PTT, PTINR, decreased platelets, decreased fibrinogen. This is all going to point towards DIC. You can give these patients FFP or cryo, which hopefully we're already doing in our one-to-one-to-one ratio. Consider cryo if the fibrinogen is depressed. And then ultimately, the patients will often need a hysterectomy. Again, we either need to get our consultant to the patient or a patient to the consultant as quickly as we can. Let's wrap up with three big points. Number one is to recognize postpartum hemorrhage. More than 500 cc's or more bleeding than you expect. Number two is resuscitation. Large bore IVs, blood instead of crystalloid in a one-to-one-to-one ratio, and get your consults to the bedside. And then third is to consider the four most common causes of postpartum hemorrhage. Tone or uterine atony, tissue meaning retained products, trauma including lacerations and uterine atony, and then finally thrombin or DIC. I want to talk about what I think might be the most important trial published in the last year, and it's a trial that almost no one has heard about. It's Berman 2019, published in the Frontiers of Neurology. The title is A Comparison of Parenteral Phenobarbital versus Parenteral Phenytoin as Second-Line Management for Pediatric Convulsive Status Epilepticus in a Resource-Limited Setting. So this is an RCT of second-line options in status epilepticus. Before diving into the trial, I'll just remind you of the three other big seizure trials that we had from last year. Concept and Eclipse both compared levetiracetam to phenytoin as a second-line agent in pediatric patients, and the ESSET trial compared phosphenytoin, levetiracetam, and valproate in adults. Two major takeaways from those trials. First, all of the tested options looked pretty much identical. Second, they all sort of sucked. These second-line agents failed about half the time. That's why I think the Berman paper is so important. This is a pediatric study, kids aged 1 month to 15 years of age. The big caveat is that it's from South Africa, so the system of care might be different than what we're used to. 3% of these kids had HIV, 2% had tuberculosis meningitis, so definitely some small differences to what I'm used to in Canada. In this trial, they randomized kids in status to one of two different algorithms. In algorithm 1, the standard care arm, they used two doses of benzos, followed by phenytoin, 20 milligrams per kilogram, and if that didn't work, the patient was put on a midazolam infusion. So basically what most of us have been doing, exactly what we've been taught to do. In algorithm number two, they gave two doses of benzo, and if that didn't work, they gave phenobarbital, 20 milligrams per kilogram. And if the first dose of phenobarb didn't work, they could give two more doses of phenobarb at 10 milligrams per kilogram. For their primary outcome, the number of patients who had their seizure stopped after a single dose of the second-line agent, phenobarbital absolutely destroyed phenytoin. It was a blowout. 86% success with phenobarb as compared to only 46% with phenytoin. A 40% absolute difference. A number needed to treat of 2.5. In all of our other trials, We can only stop about half of seizures with our second-line agent. With a single dose of phenobarb, we stopped almost 90%. And it gets even better. In the phenobarb group, there were five kids who were still seizing after that first dose of phenobarb. The second dose stopped the seizure in four out of five. So the phenobarb algorithm only failed one child, 1%. The median time it took for seizures to stop, 10 minutes with phenobarb, 28 minutes with phenytoin. Now, those outcomes are astounding. In emergency medicine, we nitpick trials that have a 1% benefit. Number needed to treat in the hundreds. This trial had a 40% absolute benefit in a really important outcome in critically ill patients, and yet nobody's talking about this trial. I guess you probably want to know about downsides, right? Phenobarb might be dangerous. You might get respiratory depression. Are all these kids going to end up intubated? 
Honestly, if it results in better outcomes, I don't think that we should be scared of intubating these kids. Intubation might just be part of good critical care. And it's true. Using phenobarb did lead to some respiratory depression. 56% of the kids in the phenobarb group had respiratory depression. But in the phenytoin group, 70% had respiratory depression. So not only does phenobarb stop many more seizures and do it faster, it has fewer side effects. Less kids end up in the ICU. So what do we do with this information? I think this is clearly a practice-changing article. We know that the longer you seize, the higher your mortality and the worse your neuro outcomes. This trial shows us that phenobarb stops almost twice as many seizures and does it more than twice as fast. Yes, this is a single-center study. Yes, the patients in South Africa might be different than those in North America. Yes, seizure duration is only a surrogate outcome. What we really care about is long-term survival and good neurologic function. Absolutely, we need to see this trial replicated. No single trial is definitive. But we have decades of data showing us that our current status algorithms fail consistently. And now we have an RCT showing an algorithm that succeeded in 99% of kids. That's really hard to ignore. I think this study tells us that if a seizure doesn't respond to benzodiazepines, an anesthetic agent is the most appropriate second-line option. Personally, I use propofol just because it's more readily available And I think it's likely equivalent to the phenobarb that they used here. But if you're comfortable with phenobarb, it's clearly a good evidence-based option. Propofol for status was also mentioned in EM cases episode number 133, but they didn't specifically mention this trial. I think it's worth going back and listening to that excellent episode on status and thinking specifically about what you want to use as your second-line agent, considering the dramatic benefit seen in this trial. For me, my second-line agent in adults is usually going to be propofol, and in kids, it's going to be, you guessed it, phenobarb. Let us know if you have any suggestions for alternative second-line agents. Next up, we have addictions guru Michelle Clayman describing a program that could revolutionize the care of patients with alcohol use disorder, which unfortunately is on the rise in North America. You see a 55-year-old male with a fever, headache, cough, and general malaise for the past two days. There's been no known recent COVID contacts or travel. His past medical history includes severe alcohol use disorder and PTSD. His physical exam is unremarkable and his chest x-ray is clear. You swab him for COVID-19 and ask him to self-isolate. He mentions that he's not able to do this as he has no fixed address and usually sleeps on park benches or stays at shelters. What now? What do we do with patients who experience homelessness who are waiting their COVID swab? With nowhere to discharge these patients to to risk community spread, we literally created a homeless shelter in our department, utilizing the waiting room and every available storage space for patient isolation beds. At the beginning, patients stayed in our department up to five days waiting for their results. Currently, the results are back within 24 hours and sometimes less. About a month ago, the city where I work also opened up a number of hotels that could take patients and transfer for waiting for their results. However, there still is often a lag time and these patients spent several hours in our department. To make matters more complex, many patients who experience homelessness have concurrent mental health or alcohol and substance use diagnoses. At our site, we started a few initiatives to help us provide care for NFA, PUI, or no fixed address people under investigation. First, we created a resident rotation called the PITCH-ED rotation, or Pandemic Inner City Health in the ED, to make sure we had residents rounding on the NFA, PUI patients each morning to make sure they had everything they needed, including their general medications and addressing any addiction and mental health concerns. What we noticed early on was that some patients with active alcohol or substance use disorders were at risk for leaving against medical advice as they did not want to remain sequestered in RED. Without access to their drugs of choice or alcohol, they were at risk for leaving and spreading COVID to the community should they test positive. Even though our docs are very comfortable treating opioid and alcohol withdrawal with buprenorphine and diazepam respectively, some patients refused medical detoxification. With opioids, this is fairly simple. We can prescribe high-dose, short-acting opiates like morphine or hydromorphone, or even long-acting morphine to prevent opioid withdrawal for those not interested or not willing to start opioid agonist therapy, most commonly with buprenorphine in the ED. 
For alcohol, of course, we offer detoxification and initiation of anti-craving medications such as naltrexone and acamprosate. But for those who decline, the only option is, well, alcohol. So we quickly developed a managed alcohol program in RED, where patients can receive up to 15 standardized drinks per day, spaced out one per hour during daytime hours. To minimize contact, several drinks may be provided at a time. In our department, we have white wine, which is recommended over red as it is difficult to exclude a GI bleed after someone vomits after drinking red wine. We could have used beer, but wanted to minimize storage and waste. This is not a new idea. Managed alcohol programs have been around for several years. In the city where I work, a prominent men's shelter has a managed alcohol program. It's been in place since 1995. Programs like these prevent alcohol consumption in managed doses or in specific areas. The shelters ensure that high-risk homeless individuals can avoid exposure to extreme weather conditions, assault on the street, extreme alcohol poisoning, or the substitution of non-beverage for alcohol products such as hand sanitizer and mouthwash. It also helps prevent binge drinking by ensuring only one drink is consumed per hour. Usually the maximum is 15 drinks, but the average is closer to 6 to 8. Managed alcohol programs have been shown to be quite effective. With regards to the Toronto Men's Shelter Program, visits to the emergency department decreased 93% since the program started. There's also significant cost savings for emergency medical services, police, and healthcare services in general. The number of people drinking hand sanitizer and mouthwash also went down. Programs in Ottawa and Thunder Bay show similar results. I hope the Managed Alcohol Program is here to stay. Although it was a COVID miracle to get all the stakeholders to agree that this harm reduction initiative was absolutely necessary to prevent the spread of COVID and encourage social isolation, you can imagine how useful this will be for patients requiring admission to hospital for medical reasons unrelated to their alcohol use disorder who do not wish to undergo medical detoxification. To circle back to our patient, he agreed to stay in RED until his results came back and received nine standardized drinks per day. Three drinks were delivered to his room every three hours. He stayed for a total of 40 hours and his swab came back negative. If it did come back positive, he would have been transferred to a COVID recovery site or one of the hotels I was mentioning before, and the prescribed alcohol would have been continued. Managed alcohol is a form of harm reduction. Harm reduction is an evidence-based, patient-centered approach that seeks to reduce the health and social harms associated with addiction and substance use. It does not require people to be abstinent or stop using substances. It provides people with a choice in a non-judgmental manner, and in our case as eMERGE physicians, allows patients to participate in medical investigations and treatments without forced detoxification. Now, some of you may not be convinced by the harm reduction approach, but programs like this managed alcohol program are being touted by leaders in addiction medicine as the way to go. And there's a good body of evidence out there on harm reduction programs for both opioids and alcohol that, to me, really are very convincing. All right, next up, we have Andrew Petrosoniak, trauma team leader, who's going to give us a lowdown on how to approach cardiac arrest in both the blunt and penetrating trauma patient. But first, a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts in scheduling systems. Things in emergency medicine have really been under strain and change for the last several months. COVID has exposed weaknesses in our scheduling systems and practices. When staff went off sick or on quarantine, we really saw how thin our rosters were and how every worker and every shift mattered. Whether your ED has lower than usual volumes or higher volumes because of COVID, your old scheduling templates just don't cut it. Through all of this, Metricade has been agile and responsive. Metricade actively participates in the day-to-day reactions to COVID on the workforce. They help modify schedules on the fly, adjusting hours of shifts and daily rosters, and making the most of limited resources. By taking over a lot of the new and complicated administrative burden on managing our schedules during the pandemic, they've shown that they are more than just a scheduling system. They become true partners in staff health safety and satisfaction. Metricade is ready to bring you on board anytime and I'm confident they'll be able to help us through whatever uncertainty lies ahead. I'm going to present two cases of traumatic cardiac arrest here to highlight how we can approach these challenging cases. And we're going to link this to some new data from a recently published systematic review and meta-analysis led by Dr. Alex Tran from the University of Ottawa about the topic. 
Full disclosure, I am an author on the paper, but fortunately there were a bunch of smarter authors than me to compensate for my contributions. So let's get started. Case 1. A 56-year-old female involved in an MVC. She has agonal respiratory effort when EMS arrives on the scene and loses a pulse prior to transport, which is about 10 minutes to hospital. CPR is performed, but she never has a shockable rhythm. Okay, case number two. A 32-year-old man is stabbed in the chest. There are signs of life on scene, according to bystanders, though none observed by EMS when they arrive. His transport time is about 15 minutes. So how can we use evidence to help support our decision-making? Well, first, recognize that it's unlikely any data will perfectly apply to your patient. And also, you'll be dealing with incomplete information as this plays out. There are two sets of expert recommendations from the Eastern and Western Trauma Associations, which I highly recommend people review. But they focus specifically on the decision about ED thoracotomy. The broader questions that we face, though, include what prognostic factors can be used to help guide those split-second decisions about resuscitation. Not just ED thoracotomy, but who might benefit from resuscitation and who won't. Let's dig into this a bit. So from the systematic review and meta-analysis, there's a few interesting findings. Here's the big take-home. If you're not using ultrasound regularly for cardiac activity and identification of tamponade in traumatic cardiac arrest, you should be. The presence of cardiac motion on ultrasound was the most important predictor of Roskin survival. While only 448 of the 37,000 patients that were included in the study did have documented ultrasound, and we acknowledge that's certainly a limitation, there were no survivors among those who had cardiac standstill. So what does that mean? Well, if I have a patient with a blunt cardiac arrest, one of the first things that I'll do, often I'll do it personally myself, given how important the information is, I'll go right for a pericardial view with the ultrasound. I'll ensure that CPR stopped. I know, crazy. But if there's no cardiac activity and it's a blunt mechanism, unless there's some extenuating circumstances, that's sufficient for me to stop the resuscitation. If there is cardiac activity, then maybe I'll continue the resuscitation just until I get a bit of further information to make a more informed decision. My caveat here, though, is for the penetrating mechanism patient. If the timelines are pretty favorable, maybe 10-15 minutes from signs of life or ongoing signs of life, I'm going to skip the ultrasound altogether and just go ahead with the ED thoracotomy. For a few reasons. I really don't want to waste time, and there's a chance that we'll be able to perform a meaningful intervention. And I'm really less concerned about what the ultrasound shows, as it won't change my approach. In contrast, the patient has had no signs of life or a prolonged period of downtime, 20-30 minutes, pupils are dilated, then I'll actually use the ultrasound in these cases to confirm that I'm not going to proceed with anything invasive, especially ED thoracotomy since it isn't without its harms to the clinical team, like sharp injuries for instance. So basically I use ultrasound to help support my decision to stop resuscitation. What else did the systematic review find? Well, two other factors were associated with higher odds of survival, shockable rhythm and witnessed arrest. These aren't that surprising since shockable rhythms are more likely to represent a shorter time of arrest and witness arrest probably results in getting to hospital more quickly. Looking a bit more closely, we reviewed 397 patients with a shockable rhythm, 14% compared with 2.4% survived with a uh, shockable rhythm. So how do you use this? Well, I'll definitely deliver one to two shocks, no questions asked. I start thinking, though, two things. One, maybe this is an arrest that just happened. And two, maybe there's a non-traumatic cause to consider. What about CPR? Well, there's no data about doing CPR once the patient arrives in the hospital. My practice is to stop all CPR unless I have substantial evidence to suggest that it's an underlying medical cause. For instance, a low-speed MVC in an older patient who suffers a traumatic or a so-called traumatic cardiac arrest. Pre-hospital CPR, however, was associated with higher odds of survival in our study. I'm not sure if this is just a confounder relating to getting to hospital. Mechanistically, pushing on a heart without blood in it probably doesn't have much effect. So what should we do? Well, 
EMS can continue CPR, and then as a trauma team, we'll stop and focus on more useful interventions that we can provide in the hospital. A few other key findings, head injuries, not surprisingly, were associated with lower odds of frost survival. This isn't surprising, but I think it highlights how we should include this as part of our evaluation when deciding upon intervention. If there's a substantial head injury, maybe open skull fracture or obvious skull deformity, in the context of traumatic cardiac arrest, regardless of the mechanism, even if the patient was stabbed, this is a pretty clear indicator for me not to proceed. I highly recommend making a point of evaluating the extent of the head injury for these patients when they arrive. So let's get back to our cases. The first case, 56-year-old female involved in an MVC who had some agonal respiratory effort with EMS and arrives in hospital 10 minutes later with CPR in progress. Using the best available data and our shared experience at our trauma center, we'll do the following. I'll make an early declaration, even before the patient arrives, that CPR will be stopped, as we'll prioritize other interventions. I'll be ready with the ultrasound. Given only 10 minutes of downtime, if there's still cardiac activity, then we'll probably move to secure the airway, perform bilateral finger thoracostomies, and administer some blood products. This will be coupled with a quick examination of pelvis stability and obvious head injuries. If there's evidence of a substantial head injury or the ultrasound shows no cardiac activity, then we won't proceed with any of the invasive interventions and we'll stop resuscitation. Also, if the timing is 20, 30, 40 minutes, then I'm also far less likely to even start the recess. Case number two, a patient with stabbing to the chest, 15 minutes without signs of life. For this patient, I'll approach things a bit differently. Here, I'll actually probably omit the ultrasound because our center is pretty well resourced to perform an ED thoracotomy. However, I think there's real value for centers who rarely or never perform them to put the ultrasound probe on. And if there's no tamponade and no cardiac activity, then you should certainly feel very justified in stopping resuscitation. If there is cardiac motion without tamponade, then you might consider just decompressing the chest, though this would only be if ED thoracotomy isn't possible at your site. If there is tamponade, then there really needs to be a protocol in place to help guide this decision, but recognize that ED thoracotomy really is what's required. All right, so the two big take-home points for me are, one, cardiac ultrasound should probably be part of your primary survey and is especially helpful if there's no cardiac activity observed to make the decision not to resuscitate. And number two, CPR is not a priority in traumatic cardiac arrest unless you suspect an underlying medical cause. Next up, we've got the best of EM docs with Britt Long, and he's going to talk about some pearls and pitfalls of cholangitis. There are some diseases that seem easy on paper, but when it comes to practice, they're just downright challenging. Theoretically, we know that cholangitis is due to some form of common biliary duct obstruction. This obstruction is usually due to gallstones, but any form of stricture or malignancy can cause obstruction. Cholangitis can be a difficult diagnosis, but one that, if missed, can cause death. But why is this? On the surface, cholangitis seems pretty similar to acute calculus cholecystitis, but there are some important differences. Cholecystitis involves a contained infection, usually limited to the gallbladder. However, Cholangitis is almost never limited to just the gallbladder. In cholangitis, bacteria under pressure in the bile ducts spread to the blood, causing bacteremia and potentially fast progression of septic shock. In fact, mortality can reach 100% if the obstruction is not relieved. So when should we consider this disease, and what should we use for diagnosis? You may have heard of Charcot's triad of fever, jaundice, and right upper quadrant pain, and Reynolds pentad, which adds hypotension and altered mental status. Both of these are specific at over 85%, but sensitivity is horrible. The sensitivity of Charcot's triad is close to 25%, and Reynolds pentad is even worse at 5-7%. Patients can present similarly to cholecystitis with right upper quadrant pain and nausea and vomiting, but... Patients with cholangitis are sicker. They will probably look toxic, may have rigors and fevers, and can have jaundice. 
patients may present with sepsis and bacteremia without localizing symptoms, making the diagnosis even more difficult. Your first takeaway is that you should think about cholangitis in patients with rigors, abdominal pain, jaundice, and toxic appearance. Also think about the disease in the older patient with sepsis without a source who's toxic appearing. When it comes to labs, markers of biliary obstruction with bilirubin and transaminase elevation occur more frequently in cholangitis. Now I'm not just talking about that mild elevation, but bilirubin may be over 4 mg per deciliter. Alkaline phosphatase is elevated in over 90% of patients as well. Patients often have a white count over 15,000. Now what should you use for diagnosis? Our typical go-to imaging modality for the gallbladder involves ultrasound. But for this disease, ultrasound may miss cholangitis. It's true that many patients with cholangitis will have a common bile duct greater than 7 millimeters, but you can't use common bile duct measurements to rule in or rule out the disease. Many patients with prior cholecystectomy will have enlarged common bile ducts at baseline. And patients with early cholangitis may have a normal common bile duct diameter. You can use serial ultrasound exams at the bedside to evaluate for progression, as a single ultrasound exam is just a snapshot in time of what's going on. Shockingly, ultrasound has a sensitivity ranging from 25 to 60% for stones located within a common bile duct. We do have something better than ultrasound, and that's CT. As these patients are typically sick in appearance, CT is a great place to start as it will give you a look at the whole abdomen and potential causes of sepsis. CT with IV contrast has sensitivities and specificities well over 90% for finding common bile duct obstruction and stones, as well as diagnosing common bile duct dilation. Is there anything we have for official diagnostic criteria? If you aren't driving and pull up a computer, Head over to MDCalc and check out the Tokyo guidelines for cholangitis. This validated score takes into account systemic inflammation, evidence of cholestasis on labs, and imaging findings with a sensitivity over 90% and a specificity approaching 80%. One marker for systemic inflammation and lab abnormalities is diagnostic of cholangitis. Treatment includes broad-spectrum antibiotics, fluid resuscitation, and consultation for ERCP. Remember, in sepsis, source control is king, and this patient absolutely needs source control. In summary, cholangitis with its biliary obstruction and high likelihood of bacteremia can be deadly. Patients who are toxic appearing and have evidence of cholestasis meet criteria for diagnosis. Your first-line imaging modality is CT with IV contrast. Remember, your ultrasound may be negative in early disease, and you can't use it to exclude the diagnosis. If you diagnose cholangitis, discuss the case emergently with your GI specialist for ERCP, resuscitate, and provide broad-spectrum antibiotics. Nice. So forget about Charcot's triad and Raynaud's. Just think about the possibility of cholangitis in two groups of patients— First, those who you're considering cholecystitis, but they look much sicker, they're toxic, they're jaundiced, they look septic. That's the one group. And then the second group is those older patients with sepsis, but an occult source. Remember that CT is your go-to, and do take a minute to calculate the Tokyo score to help guide you. All right, last but not least, we have a new guest expert on EM cases, and I'm very excited about this gentleman, Dr. Bork Tillman. He's a huge brain who trained in both emergency medicine and intensive care. He's an intensivist and trauma team leader at Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto, and he's a master educator. We've got him lined up for our next main episode podcast on DKA, but here he's going to give us the lowdown on the ED recognition and management of ARDS. This is part one, and in the next EM Quick Hits podcast number 23, we'll give you part two. Now, ARDS is a diagnosis that's often overlooked in the ED, but if we recognize it early, we can save some lives. So let's say you have a patient you think has ARDS. What could they look like? 
The current patient that likely pops into our minds is someone who comes in with a cough and a fever and is suspected to have COVID pneumonia. However, ARDS is not only a sequelae of respiratory infections. It can occur secondary to any clinical insult, ranging from pancreatitis to major trauma to severe cellulitis to a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Consequently, the first step in treating ARDS is being able to recognize that the patient has ARDS. The key features of ARDS are hypoxia and bilateral infiltrates on chest imaging. However, the formal diagnosis is based on specific criteria known as the Berlin definition. The Berlin definition has three criteria. The first is timing. As the name ARDS suggests, it is an acute disease. For a patient to be diagnosed with ARDS, the findings on chest imaging must occur within seven days of the known clinical insult or worsening respiratory status. The second criteria are the radiographic findings themselves. For a patient to be identified as having ARDS, they must have bilateral opacities on chest x-ray or CT scans of the chest. These opacities should not be explained by effusions, collapse, or lung nodules. The final criteria is the origin of the respiratory failure. The findings on chest imaging should not be fully explained by either heart failure or fluid overload. Putting these three criteria together, if a patient presents with acute shortness of breath, has a chest x-ray with bilateral findings, and there isn't a reason to suspect they're in florid CHF, a diagnosis of ARDS should at least be considered. Although I know I'm making the identification of ARDS sound very straightforward, examination of the practice of ICUs around the world have shown that between 25 to 50% of cases go unrecognized. What I take this to mean is that in patients with respiratory failure, it is important to remain vigilant for the diagnosis of ARDS. Now, after deciding that the patient you're treating has ARDS, you need to consider how this diagnosis is going to affect your management. Thankfully, the initial answer is very little. Your approach to these patients should be similar to the approach you have to any critically ill patient. Remember, ARDS occurs as a result of a systemic illness, and the main principle in the management of ARDS is treatment of the underlying disease. So treat the patient. That being said, let's talk about some of the key treatment decisions related to ARDS. Currently, there are no medications which have been demonstrated to be effective in the treatment of ARDS. For specific causes of respiratory failure, such as COVID, evidence is emerging regarding the role of steroids. These findings have renewed interest in steroids for all patients with ARDS. However, steroids have not yet become standard therapy in the treatment of ARDS. Consequently, the majority of treatment decisions for these patients are going to be related to supportive care. So the first treatment decision and likely one of the most important decisions that you're going to make for these patients, is how to deliver oxygen. The major challenge in this decision comes when a patient fails to respond to supplemental oxygen delivered via a standard face mask. At this point in time, there are usually three common options available. High-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, or invasive ventilation. In patients who are rapidly deteriorating, their clinical course likely dictates their treatment strategy and intubation ends up being required for stabilization of their status. In patients with a more insidious course, alternative delivery methods can be considered. My approach to auction delivery for patients with hypoxic respiratory failure has been heavily influenced by the Florali trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Although a secondary outcome, this study suggested that high-flow nasal auction was associated with a reduced 90-day mortality compared to either standard auction or non-invasive ventilation. Unfortunately for me, a recent systematic review looking at high-flow nasal oxygen, face mask non-invasive ventilation, and helmet non-invasive ventilation, published by Fiorero and colleagues in JAMA, has challenged my current approach. In this study, they demonstrated that although both high-flow nasal oxygen and all modes of non-invasive ventilation were associated with decreased risks of intubation as compared to standard oxygen, only non-invasive ventilatory modes were associated with decreased mortality as compared to standard oxygen. When they limited their population to patients who didn't have common indications for non-invasive ventilation, so excluding patients with COPD and CHF, no mortality benefit was seen comparing non-invasive ventilation with a face mask to standard oxygen. So what is my takeaway from this new evidence? 
Well, at my hospital, we don't have access to helmet non-invasive ventilation, so I can't use that. That being said, if a patient has an indication for face mask non-invasive ventilation, so if they have COPD, CHF, then that's likely going to be my go-to agent. In the remainder of these patients, if a patient doesn't require immediate intubation, I'm going to continue to trial using high-flow nasal oxygen. My reasoning for this is high-flow nasal oxygen may be better tolerated than non-invasive ventilation via face mask, and I do believe in its ability to potentially decrease the risk of intubation as shown by this systematic review. So let's say you decide to manage a patient with high-flow nasal oxygen, and while they are under your care in the emergency department, they continue to deteriorate. The next question to ask is when is the correct time to proceed with intubation? And really, there is no one-size-fits-all answer. Common cues which can help with decision are related to how the patient looks from the end of the bed. Are they having a significantly elevated respiratory rate? Are they using accessory muscles to breathe? Does it look like they're tiring out? I consider the amount of inspired oxygen they are requiring. Once a patient is requiring greater than 80% inspired oxygen via a high-flow delivery device, my threshold to intubate becomes very low. The reason for this is although they might look comfortable on 90 or 100% oxygen, there is no room to increase their oxygen delivery. If they are to deteriorate, they will be a physiologically challenging intubation. But again, timing-related intubation is a clinical decision and will vary from patient to patient. Now, if you've decided to intubate a patient with ARDS, the next challenge is how to manage their invasive ventilation. This decision can seem overwhelming at first, especially to those of you not familiar with setting up an invasive ventilator. Thankfully, there are only four common settings which we're going to modify to change a patient's ventilation and oxygenation. These settings are PEEP and inspired oxygen to modify their oxygenation, and tidal volume and respiratory rate to change their ventilation. So the first step in setting up the ventilator of a patient you have just intubated who has ARDS is to decrease their tidal volume. The goal is to have a tidal volume of 6 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. Remember, ideal body weight is calculated based on a patient's height. This target is based on a landmark ARDSNET study from 2000, which demonstrated that patients who were ventilated with low tidal volumes had lower rates of mortality compared to those ventilated at 12 cc's per kilogram. So once you've decreased their tidal volume to 6 cc's per kilo, the next step is to optimize their oxygenation. Although it may be possible to improve a patient's saturations by increasing their delivered oxygenation, only decreasing the inspired oxygenation is not an ideal strategy. Instead, application of appropriate PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure, can help improve oxygenation without increasing your inspired O2. I know PEEP can sometimes get thrown around like a magic term, and I still find the balloon metaphor the easiest way to conceptualize its application. If you think of the alveoli as a balloon, once all the air escapes, it is going to collapse. The capillaries around them constrict due to a hypoxic phasal constriction. Like a balloon, the collapsed walls stick together, and it takes more effort to open them back up. On the opposite end of the spectrum is the overinflated balloon. If you try to blow a balloon up too much, it's going to become harder and harder to increase its size, and eventually you will cause the balloon to pop. The same thing happens if you try and over-distend alveoli. Instead, to make it as easy as possible for the balloon, or the alveoli, to fill and empty, you want to keep it slightly filled. At this state, the walls are easy to open up, but they're not at risk for popping, and they never fully close. This slightly filled state is what we are trying to do with appropriate PEEP. Unfortunately, the determination of optimal PEEP is an ongoing discussion amongst intensivists worldwide, and there is yet to be a clear answer. My goal is to identify a level of PEEP which leads to improved oxygenation while minimizing potential decreases in blood pressure, which can sometimes occur due to impaired preload, and also while attempting to maintain a plateau pressure below 30 centimeters of water. As a quick reminder, the plateau pressure is the pressure in the lungs during an inspiratory pause or when all air is held in. For those unfamiliar with PEEP titration, a good first step is to refer to the PEEP tables in the 2004 RSNET trial comparing high versus low PEEP. 
Although this is, again, not a cookbook recipe, it'll at least give you some familiarity with the relationship between PEEP and Inspired Oxygen. The last step in setting up the ventilator is optimizing ventilation. By setting a tidal volume of 6 cc's per kilo, it is likely that we've induced a respiratory acidosis. Permissive hypercapnia is likely beneficial in this patient population. I attempt to optimize CO2 only so much as increasing respiratory rate allows. Remember, the more times you breathe per minute, the less time you have to breathe out. So if you increase the respiratory rate too much, you're at the risk of causing air trapping. I tend to only add further therapies to treat ongoing acidosis if I'm concerned that extremes in acidosis are causing hemodynamic or physiologic instability. Now I know that optimizing ventilatory settings sounds more like ICU management than emergency department therapy. However, the settings that a patient is placed on after intubation can remain unchanged for hours and if set incorrectly can result in significant trauma to a patient's already inflamed lungs. As such, after the decision to proceed with intubation, the initial setup of the ventilator may be one of the major drivers in the patient's initial hospital course. Regardless of the method of oxygen delivery, a common focus in the treatment of patients with ARDS is fluid management. The FACT trial from 2006 attempted to examine both care guided by a pulmonary artery catheter as well as different fluid management strategies in ARDS. Although overall negative trial, the findings of the study did suggest that conservative fluid strategy was associated with a decreased duration of mechanical ventilation. This does not mean that when a patient presents to the emergency department with ARDS, we should be jumping to give them diuretics. In fact, most of these patients are going to be intravascularly depleted secondary to their underlying disease. As such, it is far more common to have to give these patients fluid during the initial resuscitation. Another therapy that has been a major topic of discussion recently is prone positioning. This treatment has gotten a lot of attention due to the COVID pandemic. The best evidence regarding prone positioning is the PROCEVA trial. This trial demonstrated that in intubated patients with moderate to severe ARDS, early prone positioning of a patient for at least 16 hours was associated with improved patient outcomes. 16 hours of ongoing prone ventilation of a critically ill patient is a therapy that sure doesn't sound like something that's going to be delivered in the emergency department. That being said, case series are starting to be published which demonstrate the feasibility of prone positioning of the non-intubated patient as a strategy to avoid intubation. It remains unclear at this point in time if this therapy is associated with improved outcomes as compared to standard management protocols, and it'll be interesting to see what further studies demonstrate. The last therapy to touch on is the use of paralysis. Although a commonly used treatment for the ventilated patient with respiratory failure, recent evidence suggests that early use of paralytic agents is not associated with improved outcomes as compared to standard management. I am no longer using paralysis as a standard treatment for intubated patients with moderate severe ARDS. Instead, I'll consider use of a paralytic agent in patients who I cannot achieve low tile volume ventilation despite appropriate analgesia and sedation as a way to minimize the potential harmful effects of high tidal volume ventilation, and I will also consider using paralysis as a rescue therapy in a patient who hasn't responded to any of the other therapies we've already discussed. Again, what are the implications of this evidence for the emergency department? Well, I often use a paralytic when I intubate patients, so initially they are still going to be paralyzed. However, after the initial induction, I focus my interventions on appropriate ventilatory management and resuscitation of the patient. Now, I know we've covered a lot of therapies in a short period of time. For the emergency department perspective, there are a few key points I hope you can take away. First of all, recognition of ARDS is essential in order to optimize treatment. So remember to consider the diagnosis in patients with respiratory failure and bilateral lung infiltrates. Second, one of the most important decisions we make in the emergency department is the method of oxygen delivery. Evidence regarding the optimal therapies continue to evolve, and in patients with isolated hypoxic respiratory failure, I do still trial high flow nasal oxygen in the absence of a clear indication for intubation or a clear indication for non-invasive ventilation. However, I am very interested in the possibilities offered by helmet-based non-invasive ventilation. Third, once intubated, the key to setting up the ventilator is choosing a strategy which minimizes lung injury. This approach includes low tidal volume ventilation, appropriate application of PEEP, and permissive hypercapnia.
Finally, there are no proven pharmacologic therapies for the treatment of ARDS. Steroids are again receiving more attention, and hopefully, as new evidence emerges, their role in the treatment of ARDS will become more clear. So that's the last quick hit in this episode number 22. Quickly reviewing here, when it comes to postpartum hemorrhage, after delivery, don't forget about mom to focus on the baby. Look for bleeding and initiate aggressive management early. Once you recognize postpartum hemorrhage, rally your consultants immediately. Remember that uterine atony is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage, so start with external uterine massage, progress to internal massage, and consider packing, as well as starting oxytocin. Recognize other causes of postpartum hemorrhage if atony is not present. Next, Morgan Stern told us about a well-done study showing that phenobarbital is better than phenytoin as a second-line agent for pediatric status epilepticus, and that in adults, consider propofol as your second-line agent. Next, we learned that managed alcohol programs are probably the best way to treat your patients with alcohol use disorder who have nowhere to go after their ED stay but back to their homeless shelter or the street to drink again. Petro reminded us of the value of using cardiac ultrasound in the traumatic cardiac arrest patient and the deprioritization of CPR in favor of things like bilateral finger thoracostomies, blood products, and pelvic binders in the blunt trauma patient. Then, Britt Long explained how Charcot's triad and Raynaud's pentad are pretty useless in ruling out cholangitis, so instead, just get that cognitive forcing strategy to think about cholangitis in any patient who you think might have cholecystitis but is sicker than you'd expect and in older patients with sepsis with no definitive source. Remember that CT is better than ultrasound and that the Tokyo score is worth looking at when considering the possibility of cholangitis. Finally, Bork Tillman on ARDS reviewed oxygenation strategies, ventilation strategies, prone positioning, and the use of ongoing paralytics in patients with ARDS. All right, so we're planning to run the sixth annual EM Cases course in February 2021, if you haven't heard yet. These are the small group discussions with your favorite EM Cases guest experts, high fidelity simulations and procedural stations, and a lot more surprises. Tickets will go on sale in October. So until next time, stay safe, and in the words of the late, great Barbara Tatum, make waves, be kind. <laughs>